Hey everyone, you're listening to the Vent Podcast, your source for market insights, wine industry news, and updates on our current collections. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Vent Podcast. It's Brady again, and as always, joined by Billy. We have a really special guest today on the back end of the podcast, Jeff Cunnins, who is a collector based out of Seattle, a wine collector. And we have a really awesome conversation with him. He sheds a lot of insight um, on the regions that he's most interested in, especially the Southern Rhone and Napa Valley. And so that's a great conversation that we'll share with you all later. But Billy and I want to dive in on the big week that Vint had this past week. And you're listening to this episode likely a week out from our two launches that we had, both our Brunello de Montalicino collection, as well as our Mouton Rothschild 2019 collection, both of which sold out within a day of their release this past week. And those offerings we were really excited about for a long time to share with you all. The Brunello collection we did announce ahead of time, and then the Mouton collection we launched as kind of a flash offering on Tuesday last week. We didn't always do flash offerings, but sometimes with these smaller dollar value collections, we like to kind of toss them out into the ether, sometimes catching people off guard, but really just providing, you know, first come first serve sort of opportunity for people to get in on a special offering. They're a lot of fun to do. And I think our investors get excited when they see something unexpected, but we'll continue to pepper those in along the way. But these were two offerings that we think really do add a lot of value to investor portfolios. And we're glad to share them with you guys. Yeah, no, it was an exciting week with some exciting wines. It was nice to hear, you know, we carefully craft these collections, but when Jeff is talking about some of his favorite regions or regions he's trying to get into, he mentioned Brunello from Montalcino, yeah. obviously. And then he also mentioned Bordeaux, specifically Mouton being one of his favorites. So that's that's nice. But yeah, no, both both of the collections were were really exciting. We got some great pricing on the Mouton, which was great, as well as the Brunello. So we were able to pass on, you know really great collections at at really great share prices for our investors. So it was great to see them sell out in one day and, and was exciting to be able to keep, get, let the secret out, at least on the Mouton, because that was a hard to keep. Yeah. And as, you know, as we go throughout this next month, you know, through the month of June, even into July and for the foreseeable future, we're kind of focusing a little bit more on smaller total value collections, but maybe collections a little bit more often. So you may see the cadence of collections change around a little bit, or just the total value of collections change a little bit. And that's really just us testing to see, you know, what makes the most sense for our investors, what people get excited about. I'm just testing some different themes of collections, but we've done a really great job recently, I think, of sourcing at advantageous pricing. And certainly now that we have Adam on working full-time alongside you, Billy, I think that that process has only gotten better. Yeah, for sure. Adam's years of experience and approach is certainly streamlining our process. So we're going to have the capacity to buy more wine and have more collections more often. But again, we are, as Brady mentioned, just we'll figure out how the cadence that works best for our investors. And we want to make sure everybody has, you know, access to the same wines because we're constantly getting new people on the platform. So you may see some repeats or some wines from regions that you've seen before, but you have to kind of remember that not everybody's been here as long as maybe some of our listeners have. So it's great to constantly be able to offer, you know, both blue chip and kind of growth style wines to, for everybody to add to their portfolio. And outside of just, you know, kind of the, the exciting things we're doing with wine collections and stuff. We also have some new kind of business development 
um, opportunities and and events that we're a part of. I know you guys, at least Nick and L, will be in New York on June 22nd for the Private Wealth East Spring Forum, which is an investment conference. Um, excited to get in front of family offices and other wealth managers and private banks to discuss our platform and to share what we're doing. So if you're in New York and, and want to link up, certainly send us over an email and we can see if we can get in touch. Yeah. And that that's something I don't know if everybody thinks about with Vint is the way that we're set up as, you know, SEC qualified securities. We are able, you know, we, it, it opens us up to the ability to work with some of these bigger uh, companies and them to have faith in us that, you know, we're we're qualified, we're vetted, and all of our offerings are up to snuff, which is a, a really exciting part that we're looking to expand on the Vint team or on the Vint, I guess, to grow our community is to add some of these, you know, financial managers and uh, wealth managers and private family offices, as well as be open to, you know, democratizing wine for everybody who maybe is a retail investor just interested in wine. So yeah, it's sure. a part of the beauty event. Yeah. And if, you know, if you're listening to this episode and you didn't know that you can in invest through a tax advantaged account, like an IRA, certainly speak with your financial advisor or your financial planner about the possibility of adding securitized wine and spirit assets. Um, we can work with you one-on-one -on -one to explore that process. If you have a self-directed IRA or other kind of platform that you'd like to use to purchase your, your Vint shares, if you've you know formally just been purchasing them through the standard channels on our website. So Brady, we hadn't necessarily planned this, but now that we're rolling into the week, or this will be the past weekend, so if listeners are listening on Monday, what will you have drank this weekend? Are you planning on wine-wise? Oh, so I'm going to be moving around a good bit this weekend. I'm playing in a cornhole tournament with my dad down in Virginia. So I'm not sure if we'll be opening bottles there. It'll probably be more like beer and cider stuff. But if I get the chance to, I'll probably drink some sparkling on Saturday. I am getting together with some friends in the afternoon for kind of like a, a picnic and such. I might bring over some of that new Granville sparkling that we got from when we were out in the Willamette Valley, Granville wine company. Ooh, no, nah, that sounds, that sounds nice. Yeah. I'm not that exciting. I have a bunch of, I, I've been taking my diploma courses for the W set through Napa Valley wine Academy. And I have a bunch of these wine samples left over. So I'm going to be doing some actual critical tasting this weekend. I think Southwestern France and Alsace are, on the menu and working through. So that'll be, that'll be kind of fun. To nice. differentiate yeah, no, between that's, those. that's cool to be able to like drink a couple of different things at once. I, I feel like I haven't, I've just been kind of opening one-off bottles and letting them sit in the fridge a lot recently. Cause you know, we, we just moved not, not too long ago. And so I'm just now kind of digging everything out of boxes and putting stuff in my fridge cellar again. And hopefully we'll get to have some friends over and open several bottles sometime soon. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And for those of you who have Som TV, Jeff Cunnins, the guy, our collector who we're just interviewing, has a blind tasting episode on there. So I think tonight, you know, this being Friday, I'm probably going to have a glass and watch his blind tasting episode. Yeah, he does a great job. The the Som TV tastings are really cool. Um, so especially if you get the chance to sit down with your own bottle, it doesn't have to be a bottle similar to what they're tasting on the episode, but sit down and kind of listen to the way that these folks describe the wines and it can definitely open up another, you know, way for you to experience them and, and think about the wines that you drink daily. Yeah. I always try and spend just a little bit 
thinking critically about the wine I'm drinking before I just, you know, sit blank mindedly <laughs> and drink it. So it's a good practice to get into. And it's kind of, it's also a, a study technique that some songs use in tasting groups and it's kind of like charades for wine, but it's always try to fun, fun to watch these blind tastings and try to guess what they're drinking based on their descriptions before it's unveiled. And, and when I say it's a study technique, sometimes guys or guys and gals will be in groups and they'll just, they'll have one of their, the other tasters describe what they're doing. And then they'll try to work together to see if they can figure out what wine it is. So it helps the one person be able to identify the flavors, but also like if you're describing a wine completely crazily, it'll also help you realize like, you know, maybe you're the way you're perceiving a wine is off or the way you're describing it is, is not spot on for your exam. <laughs> Cause if nobody can guess what the, what you're talking about, then that's not good. Yeah. 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 Well, good. Well, I hope you have a good weekend, Billy, regardless of what you drink, we'll leave our listeners with the, with the interview with Jeff. It's an awesome listen. We had a great time talking with him and we hope to do more collaborations with him, hopefully in the future. So enjoy. We are here with Jeff Cunnins. We're super glad to have him on the podcast today to talk about wine collecting. Jeff, thanks for being here. Hey, sure. Thanks so much. It's awesome to be here today. I appreciate it. Yeah, this is really great that we get kind of another lens into the wine world, right? We have industry folks on all the time and producers, but this is the first time that we've gotten to kind of pull the curtain back on the life and wine interests of a private collector. So excited to chat with you. Why don't you give our audience just a little bit of background briefly on who you are and maybe how you got into wine collecting? Yeah, sure. Well, high bar going first, so I'll do my best not to disappoint everybody too much. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah. So my name's uh, Jeff, and you know my wife Karina and I have been collecting wine, you know, to one degree or another, and getting you know increasingly geeky about it for you know the better part of twenty years now. We live in Seattle. We have three kids. We at one point we lived in the Bay Area near Napa for a number of years. We also lived in London for a couple of years, but Seattle is sort of our forever home. You know, day job wise, I'm your typical a tech person. I grew up in the software world at big companies like Microsoft and at Amazon, as well as at some startups. I now I'm an exec at another tech company, but we're here today to talk about wine stuff. And so, yeah, one of the things that's fun about wine collecting is it's it's one of these, it's like kind of got a Richter scale where no matter how geeky and no matter how serious of a collector you may think you are, you are both. There's always people who are 10X and 100X more geeky and more into it than you are. And so just to sort of calibrate, as I said, we've been, you know, collecting for around 20 years, you know, obviously it started slower and we today have about, well, According to Seller Tracker, 2,395 bottles in our collection at the moment right now. So that's kind of where we sit in the range. And we 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 orient a lot of our travel around wine. Even we, we have three kids and we've dragged our kids on a bunch of wine stuff over the years. And this summer actually is going to be our 20th wedding anniversary. And we're going to take our first solo two-week-long trip with no kids since before we had kids. And we're going to spend that entire two weeks doing pretty intensive wine touring, both in Bordeaux and in uh, Ribeiro del Duero in Spain, two regions we have not been to in person before. So we're incredibly excited to go do that trip. That's awesome. Thanks. Yeah, we, I mean, Vinton has a pretty large collection as well, but it's, you know, extremely special that, you know, as a private collector, that this is kind of yours, you know, you don't share equity ownership with other folks, but is it really a passion project and you think of these wines as you know all wines that you might eventually consume over the course of your lifetime or do you think of these wines as investments as well 
Yeah, it's a great question. And I'd say, to be honest, while we've always tracked the value, you know, and like, again, like our total collection. So, you know, we're all investors here. So, you know, like sort of 20, you know, 2,400 bottles at a like total value of around $420,000, according to Seller Tracker, you know, average auction value stuff. So that's, you know, kind of closing in on a half million dollar valuation collection. But I think like the vast majority of people who collect at all, it certainly is grounded and has overwhelmingly been up to this point about drinking what we love and collecting what we love to drink and what we love to learn about and far secondarily as investment, you know, but I'd say it's really exciting seeing what Vint is doing and just in general, this whole idea of the of the alternative investment classes and the securitization of different kinds of of things. And I think what's super cool about that for something like wine is in general, look, being a tech person, it's really important. I'm a big believer that in anything you invest in, you should be investing in things that you either know about or are willing to know about. So if you're going to invest in wine as an investment vehicle, I think it's important uh, for wine to be something you actually care about and want to be knowledgeable about, even if you're partnering with someone like Vint, uh, who can help add to that knowledge from an investment level. And so we, I would say, are thinking about the investment side more, but for sure, 99% of what we've done to date has been about our passion for drinking wine, discovering and learning about wine, traveling and getting to know places. So, you know, and, and actual winemakers and producers around the world, like the connection of time and place and space and people and how that produces, you know, memory in a glass, like that's certainly always been the heart of what's been behind our collection to date. I really like how you put that in. We're always trying to put together collections that will obviously drive a return. We're first and foremost, a a finance company, but educating our consumer or our investors on, you know, the different regions, the styles and what really goes into making a a good wine and a good vintage is something that's near and dear to our hearts as well. So I I definitely think the balance is important. And I, I hope that we can have people enhance their wine lives by investing with Vint as well as, you know, hopefully make them some money down the line. Yeah, totally. And and just, you know, for full disclosure for everyone, yeah, I'd be through getting to know you guys. I made my first in, uh, investment in one of the Vint securities a little ago. It was very, very small, a plate way to get started, but but I'm super excited about it. I think it's really fun. I've actually been talking about it with like with our own financial, you know, with our wealth managers and friends. And like I think it's it's really, really cool what you guys are doing. And again, at least for me. It's this really interesting intersection between an area we care a lot about and know a lot about or know a fair amount about. And then also, you know, like it's just good sound, like the investment thesis behind what you guys are doing, I think. And this whole category of alternate, you know, investments is just, even if I wasn't a wine person, it's interesting. And then the intersection of those two is like super interesting. So hats off. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, we tried to remove the barriers to wine investing, but I know there are also some probably pretty high barriers to personal wine collecting. Is that mainly around price, infrastructure, just like knowledge that you have to have? What do you, how, how did you start collecting and what are the most common barriers for people to start their own like true private collection? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's, gotten democratized so much over the last, you know, you know, I mean, every year it gets better, you know, because, you know, at this point in, you know, global supply chain and climate change impact of shipping glass around the world and all that stuff, notwithstanding like the, the diversity of wines 
at every possible price point that you can get, you know, e- even down to the local grocery store level and certainly your local private, you know, lo- local, you know, expert wine merchants, you know, no matter where you live, the range of stuff you can get access to and the range of price points, right, is like heaps and heaps and heaps different and better than it was 20 years ago, as well as, of course, access to online, you know, resources and podcasts and this and that to like get smart. But I, I think so for us, for us, it started. And for us personally, it's really connected again to place. So for me, my very first wine, real wine experience that started the whole thing for me was I was I was working for Microsoft. I was still single. I had uh, been out of college for a couple of years and I did uh, my first real solo international travel trip to Barcelona. And while I was in Barcelona, I decided to, for kicks, you know, I honestly didn't even know what I was doing, go out to Rioja and visit some wineries. Like at the time, like I really was not very into wine. Like I liked wine, but I knew almost nothing, but I just thought it would be cool. And I, it was my first time visiting wineries for real. Half of it was in Spanish, half of it was in English, but I was just captivated by the experience of walking through vineyards, walking into these old, old classic Rioja producers like Muga and, you know, Tadonia and all of them in our, in, in Aro and in Logroño. And it just, it just lit the fire for me, both for Spain specifically, but for wine in general and that connection between land and place and people. And then a couple, uh, and then a couple years after that, my now wife, when we were before we were married, we moved to San Francisco together, and we were then close to Napa. And so, what started with us was just going on weekend trips from San Francisco up to Napa for the day, and visiting the places along the Silverado Trail and along the main route. So, like going to to you know to Inglenook, you know, which at the time was you know just called Coppola. Going to you know Opus One, going to Stag's Leap, going to you know Frog's Leap. You know, take take your pick across all the ones. Going even to Beringer and taking the even though Beringer, you know, a lot of people might like to you know put their noses up at. It's such a classic old producer. And in particular, what Behringer had back in the day that was so cool was they had like the best tour where they would take you back into the old caves. And that was our first experience having that. And we basically just started joining the classic wine clubs of a few of those classic Napa producers and started accumulating bit by bit. And then the second big change was when we moved back to Seattle, we became uh, aware of Garagiste, which for those of you who don't know who it, what it is, it was kind of like uh, it's a daily, every day is a deal of a lifetime advertisement with like Kermit Lynch style, like just be- like wine porn, basically descriptions of like an incredible, you know, in-depth uh, things about it, producers. And, but you got to buy it right now. And, but at pretty attractive price points. And so we started buying a lot through, and then progressively over time, it just cut going more and more and more from there. So back to barriers, I think if you live anywhere near any place that is a wine producing region, just go visit, just go hang out in tasting rooms, just go meet the people. And you can start like at, at whatever price point fits your budget and go to your grocery store, your local wine merchant, and just try stuff from all over the world, not just the, the standard bearing regions and just try things. And then I think that the barriers more than anything else are being afraid of starting, but just start, you can do it. I like, I love that because basically I got into wine as I was working in advertising in New York and watched the movie Psalm for like the millionth time. So I, I yeah. just signed up, I just signed up for the intro Psalm exam. I wasn't that 
into wine prior to that or into wine at all. And it's, I think it was because it was intimidating or something. It was that barrier. But once I started studying and like the barriers started coming down and I just started reading, I I became fascinated. And it's interesting because you learn one producer from one region, or you learn what that region's typical grapes are. And then it just opens up so many doors because then just leads you down a rabbit hole there and then leads you to other regions. And yeah, I, I think you're right. I think the barrier sometimes is just a mental one. That's right. And more and more, even, you know, here in the U S and around the world, like, obviously there's more and more and more places that have grapes under vine and that are becoming producers, whether you're in the Finger Lakes or in Virginia or in Michigan, like there's, there's obviously there are places that are the, the centers of gravity, like, like Northern California and, and, you know, and Washington state and Oregon and stuff, but there's so many places that are also producing. And I, I think that at least for me, I think the most fun part is that connection of place producer and the wine, because once you've physically been there and physically talked to people, it just, it fixes things in your memory. It really lets you pay attention in ways. And it, I just, I think I personally, that's the most special. Now, again, different people have, you know, different access and different, you know, privilege of being able to do different amounts of travel, but just start with your own backyard, even if your own backyard isn't Napa, like the chances are you're closer to a place where someone is making wine than you think. Yeah, I think I think that's really smart. For me, it was just walking into Trader Joe's, figuring out that all of these different bottles had different grapes in them, yep. <laughs> and then trying as many different bottles that had different grapes on the back as I could, and then making note of, oh, this was good. What was that? Oh, it was Syrah. And then that just, you know, happened several times. I was like, hmm, maybe I like Syrah. So I tried more of that. And that was kind of how I got in as well. So I, you know, I think it's, it's always interesting when we talk to our guests, the many different ways that people come into the wine world and, you know, people can come from all kinds of different walks of life and, and, and end up more or less at the same place. And hopefully that place is just enjoying what you're drinking. Totally. Yeah. I also like that you, the first place you visited was Rioja too, in terms of wine travel. When I just started reading for my studies, I, I used it as an excuse to take an extended like president's day just to go to Spain very quickly. Like I had a buddy studying there or not studying there. He was teaching there and we, I, and so he was in Madrid and I insisted we drive up to Logroño and uh-huh. we, we kind of did the tasting up there as well. So I think it's a, uh, yeah, that's the similarities are. Oh, I understand awesome. what you mean there. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. So I, I know Brady probably wants to talk about the wines. Like, how do you choose your wines for collecting? Huh? I won't. Let's let's start there. I was going to ask you about the the wine books that we had previously discussed offline because you mentioned Kermit Lynch earlier, and he happens to be in one of my favorite wine books. But let's let's talk about how you go about collecting your wines. So you've kind of touched on it at the beginning. Is regions that you're interested in, but how, how did you start narrowing it down to certain producers? Is it ones that you really have like past vintages? Are there ones that you'll maybe buy a case that's, you know, that you've never had before? How how does that go? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, 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 has evolved over time as our collections gotten bigger and as our, you know, as our, as our budget has gotten bigger and then as we've just gotten more knowledgeable, but I'd say where it started, like I said, was with wine clubs for, you know, specific producers we we got to visit as well as going to Trader Joe's, going to, you know, trying things in restaurants. And for a long time, we would do, you know, both because of budget, but also just exploring, 
we would kind of buy, you know, one bottle here, two bottles there, maybe three bottles. And then again, orienting travel and then getting stuff when we, you know, are in a region, like when we're in Tuscany or when we're in, you know, Priorat or in Southern Rhone or like, you know, take your pick in Napa. But where what it's evolved to is what we do now is we almost never buy less than half a case of anything because we want to uh, buy things for to see how they develop over time. And what we tend to do is do most of our buying with producers we've come to know, either through visiting or because they're classics. And I'll come back to that in a moment, you know, and then we'll explore a field from that either with friends uh, or at restaurants. And then, and then if we find something that way, even if it's a place we haven't visited, we'll then start you know, we'll buy half a case of that and explore. If you just sort of zoom out like our actual collection because of the way that we've gone about doing stuff, more or less half of our collection is 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 Northern California and Washington State because this is where we live closest to and have spent the most time. And we know a lot about a lot of the producers. And then the other half is dominated uh, by, again, other regions we've spent time in. So a lot of Tuscany, so both like Brunello and, you know, various other, you know, you know, Montalcino or, you know, area, you know, Montepulciano, you know, Nobili things and things like that, Chianti. So a lot of Tuscany area, a lot of Southern Rhone. So a lot of Chateauneuf de Pop and Gigandas and Vacuras, and then a lot of Rioja and a lot of Priorat from that region of Spain. Those, those sort of four other things are the you know lion's share of the other half. And then what we have less of but are steadily growing, even though they're places we haven't been to in person yet, is classic Bordeaux and mostly really high-end like first growth and second growth producers and northern Rhone. So a bunch of you know, Cote Roti and Hermitage and things like that, and some, you know, Cornas, and then bits and pieces of other regions of Italy, like Barolo and bits of New Zealand, South Africa, you know, Australia, but like the lion's share is centered on the places we've spent time in. And you'll notice that one thing that I didn't mention at all, which for better and for worse, we actually have just about zero of is Burgundy. So we are deeply ignorant still. And like, I have not waded into the waters of Burgundy and are, are, are not very Pinot smart in general. And so, but I'm sure that'll begin to change over time. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting to hear about your, your mix in the old world, because it's almost that all of those regions kind of impacted each other in one way or another. So like, you know, the whether it be as a blending grape in Rioja with Garnacha being there or Priorat, and then over to the Southern Rhone, there's like kind of the connection between those grapes there. And then, That's right. We love Grenache. We love Morved. We love it. And, and just GSM stuff in general. And so mm-hmm. whether it's Grenache in Spain or Grenache dominated blends in the Southern Rhone, and then we love Morved. And one of the things that's interesting, you know, of course it's a blending grape in those classic things, but one of the cool things about us producers is that they, there's more exploration of single varietals and one of our favorite wines of all time, and it's not an expensive wine. It's like a, you know, I, I don't quote me, but like 35-ish dollars a bottle. So it's pretty inexpensive, is a bottle by a Washington producer called Mark Ryan. And the wine and the wine is called Crazy Mary. And it's a hundred percent more vet that they make. That is, we always call it the chocolate bacon wine because its notes are like chocolate and bacon. And uh, we actually we actually have a six liter of it with a cool custom etched glass bottle that we had my for my 40th birthday, my sister-in-law, uh, my wife's sister is an artist. 
and she made a, 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 a painting and we actually were able to get one of the people that make large, you know, etched glass bottles for wineries. They made a custom six liter for us with her painting on it. And the winery was kind enough to fill it. So we have a, a six liter of the 2012 Mark Ryan, Crazy Mary, hundred percent Morved in our cellar. Wow. That's, that's really cool. That big bottle. I know exactly what you mean on the hundred percent Australia. I, I worked a vintage there a while back and they call it Mataro down there mm-hmm. and they would make a bunch of, I uh, make a bunch of single varietal versions. And I know exactly what you're talking about. It is, it is chocolate and bacon. That's a great way to, I never thought about describing it that way. One thing I was also getting back to that triangle you have there, there was like the style of wines in Rioja only existed because of Bordeaux and the mm-hmm. winemakers there coming down during Phylloxera. And then even during the same time, Bordeaux producers were more like the 1700s, 1800s, when they the wine was so like claret, you know, got a little little mm-hmm. lighter. They would actually import wine from Hermitage or over in the Northern Rhone. They'd bring over some Syrah to really beef it up a little bit. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So like that was like back when there was, it was too cold of a climate to really get bigger bigger wines. So it's kind of cool. You have like a triangle of connected wines that are, you're interested in are all connected somehow. That's neat. I- that I love that. You see, that's it's learning new stuff is the, is what makes all this stuff so cool. Yeah. So I guess speaking of learning, uh, now I won't hold on any longer. What? Let's talk about wine books. I am notorious for my girlfriend is now limited. How many we're allowed to have in the house? So it's one in, one out. Thank God for Audible and Kindle. What? Are, what about you? What are your favorite? Yeah, well, I, I was going to say with your rule with your girlfriend, but then you said it, you know, I'm biased, but, you know, Kindle is a way to minimize the physical footprint. I, full disclosure, I worked, I, I worked at, on Kindle for four years when I was at Amazon. I'm a, you know, unrepentant book geek and uh, of all forms, but I, I do read a lot of, we do read a lot of wine books. I'm a big fan of Kindle. Well, actually, right now at this moment, I'm reading a book by Jamie Good called Flawless, Understanding mm-hmm. Wine Faults. It's a pretty sciencey, chemistry-centric, but still pops eye, you know, look at, at wine faults, everything from you know, you know, Brett to a reduction in overoxidation, you name it. And it's I'm I'm actually just started that a few days ago. I think some really fun. Obviously, there's the Kermit Lynch Adventures in the Wine Route that we talked about before. On the another really fun one recently covered in a couple other podcasts, but like is Godforsaken Grapes by Jason Wilson. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, and uh, Tasting the Past by Kevin Bagos. There, mm-hmm. that, that might not be pronouncing his name right because they're they again they show like the history. They really they're they're really interesting, you know, anthropologically about the history of humanity and winemaking and fermentation and, you know, and just this anthology of obscure, you know, grapes. And for like super duper geek, one of my most favorite ones is called Neuroanology. It's by a a guy named Gordon Shepard. And it's basically not about wine per se. It's actually about the science and the biology of of olfaction, of, of how we smell and how we taste. And so it's actually like, it's more of a neuroscience book and than anything else, but it is a really, really like, it's pretty down the geeky rabbit hole, but it is great. If that sound, if it sounds interesting to you, I guarantee it's interesting. Wow. No, I, that of the four, that's the one I haven't, haven't read yet. I'm definitely going to dive into that one. I was going to say flawless is fairly, fairly geeky. So if it's more geeky than that, it must be pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, I've, the tasting the past is a, a funny one for me. I feel like every wine book you have, you either it inspires a trip or like I, I went down a big like Blau Frankish route. We just went to Austria, which was a slow burn after the 
godforsaken grapes. And we also had a Chasselas from Mexico, which it's so funny because he had Chasselas up in Switzerland. I haven't made it yeah. to Switzerland to taste yet, but we had one from there. But tasting the past, I drove. So when I moved, I was living on the East Coast. I was living in New York, did my little time in Australia. So I put all my stuff in my parents' house in Virginia before moving to California. And I insisted my dad listen to tasting the past as we drive across the country. He is uh, not a wine guy, not a I guess they drink regular light beer and like whiskey occasionally, but he felt like he loves history. So I was like, oh, we'll listen to this. And then by the time we got to Los Angeles, he's like, where can we get in like an orange Georgian wine? I want to like, nice. Oh my gosh. That's so cool. That's awesome. <laughs> Cause he knew the history and he appreciated, it, I guess yeah. so we, we got one and he was like, yeah, this is fine. <laughs> totally. Absolutely. But, the it's it's and I think that's because it's like, it's these puzzles and it's about, and again, the connection, this, you know, I get asked all the time, of course, like our kids make fun of us, you know, like our, our, our kids make fun of us about our wine stuff and other, and even other friends and sometimes and whatever, but the, you know, this, the, the, I think that it's easier for non quote unquote wine people to start to appreciate like what's really behind all the hype and all the complexity and like, isn't it all just, you know, red juice with stuff like the tasting the past story, you know, because it, it helps people, I think, again, connect to the, the, the people place time and connection, you know, to history. And, you know, I think, I think actually it might've been Rajat Parr in one of his things, but like this, just saying that like the definition of a bottle of wine is like, you know, capturing you know, it's like capturing a moment in time, you know, in a certain place, you know, in a moment of history, you know, in a bottle preserved, you know, if not forever, for a very long time. And like that intersection of climate, place, people, time is is unique. And that's what makes one of the things that makes it so awesome in addition to just tasting great. Yeah. When when you're when you're reading books and doing research and, you know, even having one-off conversations, do you find that there are bottles that you end up kind of chasing for your collection? Are you chasing anything right now that you're like, man, I really want to get my hands on this wine of this vintage or of this producer? Do you think about yeah. that? Great question. I, I'd probably be there bits and pieces with, you know, chasing bottles from specific books we've done, so, you know, but absolutely. We're always like, you know, as we're, you know, learning and thinking and chasing things. So I'd say one thing we're always that we're chasing uh, is we love really, really old Madeira. And, you know, I got, got a chance, like the the first time we went to, uh, we're able to dine at Alinea, actually not in Chicago, but when they did a residence in Miami uh, a number of years ago. But we ate, you know, at Alinea and it was, they had a, they were actually pouring with dessert or after dessert, like an 1868 Madeira, you know, one of those super ultra, ultra old Madeiras that you can, you know, occasionally find. And that just sort of sparked uh, a love for the hunt for Madeiras. And, you know, we work with, in addition to places we go, the sort of wine merchants that we kind of source from, you know, that get access to things are people like Crump, Richmond and Shaw in London and Sokolin on the East Coast. Those are kind of the two we probably buy the most from other than direct from producers. And, you know, we've worked with them over time to 
you know, always be on the hunt for interesting and cool, uh, super old Madeiras. And then I'd say the other thing we're working on back to the Bordeaux thing, since like we don't have a, a, a huge by any stretch of Bordeaux, but both because we love the wine and because we love the art. My my wife was is in the arts and you know helps run a nonprofit art gallery uh, here in Seattle and used to work at SF MoMA in San Francisco and Seattle Art Museum here in Seattle. So we love Mouton and the just the you know or we're a sucker for cool labels, but especially the fine art history with Mouton. And so we're steadily building up our kind of vertical vertical collection of Mouton. And it's definitely woefully small at the moment, but it's it's growing. Nice. Those are, I, I would say one of my undergrad majors was art history. So I completely feel your wife on the, on the Mouton because that's, nice. that's my main draw as well. I, I've, I am not quite in my collecting phase as you guys. So I think my, my approach to starting with Mouton was going to be just like picking favorite artists and then going those years, regardless of the quality of the wine, just like so I could like have the bottles and then moving from there. But I'm also a sucker for old Madeira. I think Brady's probably blue in the, or go blue in the face if he, um, you know, yeah, just, to talk about Madeira again. I, I, like, I almost, right, right, I almost right. logged off because this is like Billy's episode talking about the books and um, oh, okay. the Madeira. You guys could just go. So yeah, like right now we've got like, uh, get, we've got with Motan, we've got at least one bottle and mostly one or two. We've got 82, 86, 05, 09, 2010 and 2016. So that, as I said, like in the scheme of things, that is, back to the Richter scale, that is both obviously more Mouton than most people have, but it is far less Mouton than some people have. And uh, looking forward to to continuing to fill in more of those years. You, you are you are looking at your seller tracker right now when you rattled those off, right? Because yes, uh, 2,400 bottles. Yes, that is not from memory. That's looking at seller tracker. Yeah, yes. I said, I can't, I can't, I only have, you know, like a hundred and 40 bottles and I can't do that. So that yeah, was about no, no, definitely, that's <laughs> definitely the aid of technology. That's the beauty of seller tracker for sure. Well, you started out with some, some prime years. So I think you're, yeah, on, I think you're on the right track. I would say, have you ever read the book wine and war? No, I have not. I, I recommend it. It was the first wine book. I think my mom got it for me actually, before I started. And it basically, it's like a, one of my passions is just history and world war two. So it basically tracks like, three or four different producers um, and kind of their stories through World War II and how they managed to either keep their domain going or or if they had to like, yeah, it's really cool. And it really that's, puts a, yeah. That's cool. I, I It's funny, my, my middle son who just graduated middle school, he had to read this year for school, All the Light We Cannot See, nothing mm-hmm. to do with wine, but amazing World War II book. book. Mm-hmm. And I read it, I had not read it before and I read it alongside him. And it's just, it's like, it's an amazing book. And then on Psalm TV, one of the, they did a really cool episode behind the scenes at Lafitte, where mm-hmm. they actually talked in that, in that TV episode about specifically their experience during World War II. I don't know if they are profiled in that book as well. I don't think they are. No, they tend yeah. to be like smaller producers, cool individuals, but it's almost like an all, all the light we cannot see for like wine people. Cause like they bounce around wow. from different people's stories at different stages through the war. And one of the guys is based in Bordeaux and it talks about, you know, there's a copper shortage and how are you going to make the the mixture with the, the sulfur, the, like the bouillabaisse, the, Bordeaux mix to like spray and keep the fungus away and keep the vines like but then it also talks about like one guy had to go to a concentration camp and how like 
they either got some wine or they, they somehow did something and how it kept the morale up. Like it's cool how it's kind of the lifeblood and also how they apparently in the Eagle's nest is like underneath the Eagle's nest, like Hitler's kind of yeah. mountaintop house. Is, there was, this, is it called wine and war by uh, Don and PD Cladstrup? Yes. I think well, so. this through the yes. beauty of technology, yeah, yeah, yeah. I literally just bought it right this <laughs> second while we're on this call. So yeah, you got to check it out. And then apparently there's a wine cellar underneath the um, Eagle's Nest and like French and American were battling to get there first to get to the wine. Obviously, you know, the French didn't want the Americans to drink it all and not appreciate yeah. it. So yeah, though I would say if I had, that was my first one. So, but that goes into what, if I had new financial constraints and could somehow source one, I think 1945 Bordeaux would be one of my ideal bottles, you know, just like trophy bottles, just because it, the story that like the, the it was apparently an amazing vintage, but also just the miracle of, you know, the vineyards being maintained during that time. is just nuts to me. Yeah, absolutely. That, that that's, I, I, I will cue that up. That'll be next in my queue. I love it. Thank you. Of course. All right, Brady, um, where do you think we should go now? Uh, I'll stop monopolizing the conversation. Yeah, I was, I, I literally had a question to ask Jeff, and then you mentioned 1945 Bordeaux, and I'm just stunned in my mind. I was, I'm thinking about the same thing of, you know, tending those vineyards. Yeah. You know, Jeff, the, we, we first started talking around the launch of our Lafitte collection, and it's a, a vertical of Lafitte, a 10 year vertical. Do you think about with your collecting? I guess this kind of relates to the investment markets, right? Like, Certain collection lots may command more value on any given market because of the run of years, whether it's a vertical or, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you were able to get all of the war year bottles of a certain vintage in Europe or something. You know, how much does format in terms of the bottles that you accumulate in relation to one another, how much does that mean to you as a collector? And, you know, when, when you see something like a 10-year vertical of Lafitte on an investment platform, what kinds of things are going off in your head as a collector when you think about those formats? Yeah, well, I think I think it probably applies right to both. So purely on the, if, if one was like through you guys, like purely on the investment side, I think like everything that you're talking about, and that's why you guys are, you know, choosing, you know, the lots that you are. I think that as, you know, as essentially as loose bottles that happen to be collected together, what's the likelihood of their appreciation over time? I think, you know, all the, you know, it's like going to be some combination of the, the, there are going to be the evergreen things that are, you know, you know, the the equivalent of blue chip, you know, if they're, you know, in, in traditional stocks that are both a combination of year and producer, et cetera, that, you know, barring some extremely unforeseen, you know, event are going to be reliable, accretive, you know, investments. And then there's trying to, you know, discover, you know, the equivalent of, of VC of trying to discover things that are going to pop because they haven't popped yet. I think as a collector collector for like what, you know, there is definitely format matters, right? I think people, including us, like we're, we're a sucker for large format. We're a sucker for, uh, I don't mean sucker, but we are, you know, we are willing to pay a premium and we definitely are attracted to large format bottles, bottles with particular, you know, art. I'll come back to that in a moment. And as you said, particular collections or lots. So like we've certainly bought a number of, you know, things that Negociants or others have put together that are, you know, in a particular case, a particular collection, either vertical or horizontal of, you know, one thing or another. In fact, 
you know, a fun quote unquote culty Napa producer that you may or may not be familiar with called Realm. They're actually one of our favorites. If you mm-hmm. don't know them, you should. They're amazing. And the, the winemaker is a guy named Benoit Toquette, who also does a couple of other wineries, including his own label. But Realm is amazing. And our first experience of them was actually at a kid's school auction where someone who was a member of theirs had put on the auction a horizontal, you know, really, really cool wood case with a glass top that had one of every one of their wines from that vintage year. And they do very unique, interesting, kind of like a mixture of graffiti-esque artwork, but also Asian and, you know, a calligraphy inspired, uh, just really, really beautiful labels. And that presentation, plus the fact that it, uh, just the way that they described who this producer was and their genealogy attracted us. And then we got it. And then we got, you know, drank one or two of extra bottles that we were able to source and fell in love with it. And then they've actually wound up becoming one of our favorite producers who we collect a lot of. So I think we've done similar things with like special, like homage de Perenne, like Bucastel bottlings, or we recently got a cool bottling of quote unquote, hundred point, you know, first growth Bordeaux things. It was one bottle each from different years over the last few years of a Mouton, a Lafitte, a Margot, a Hopperion, like, you know, but in a special case and like, you know, that each of those bottles individually is amazing, but having them together in that format is definitely something as a collector, we were very willing to pay a bit of a premium for. Got me thrown off this entire episode because between the books and the other names that you've been throwing around, I've been typing furiously into Google um, just to search everything. I think I think that's really cool. Your kind of your approach, uh, you know, we definitely do try. And I mean, I guess Billy can speak to this, but we definitely do care about format as well. And you know, we always have to think about what can we get and at what price, but also then is there going to be a buyer for it three to five years down the line? And so it's it's cool to talk to collectors and you know, hear that folks have, you know, the same things in mind when they're thinking about building their collections. Yeah. Well, and as you guys think it's, you know, I hadn't even thought about that. So on the back end, when you guys are ready to sell the lots that you put together, yeah, I guess I hadn't even thought about that yet of you guys selling the lots as a lot, as opposed to thinking of, you know, just thinking of them as a basket of bottles and what's happening to, the appreciation of the individual bottles. I, I think I think that's actually, uh, again, that's why you guys are in this business and I'm not, but I think that's very smart. And I, I, I absolutely think that if you're like looking to find like single buyers for the whole lot or for much of the lot when, you know, when it's done, things that have that, those sort of thematic connections in addition to being great individual bottles. Again, I, I can't speak for all buyers, but certainly for us, I think that that definitely, I could imagine that fetching a premium for sure. So if you're, you know, Billy lives on the West Coast, I live on the East Coast. So, you know, for instance, getting out to Realm a little bit harder yep. uh, for someone like me, where, when people, when you throw names out there and you say, this producer is awesome, I had an excellent experience with them. How do you typically advise people on, you know, where to start? You know, if I were to you know, try and explore Realm's wines, like, would you direct them to a certain bottle, a certain vintage? What kinds of things come to mind when you, you know, think about introducing people to a new producer that you've had a particular experience with? Yeah, sure. Well, I think, you know, it, as you say, it's like, it depends, like different, obviously it depends on the size of the producer and how readily available, you know, their stuff is. And so like sure. for things that are smaller producers, it's about, you know, 
again, I'd almost say more than anything, it's like find, find friends and like, you know, pool your resources, right? You know, because like no matter what, just like anything else, like, you know, if uh, no matter what budget level you're at, you know, you and multiple friends have will have more resources, you know, than any one of you individually. And you can, you know, think about pooling those together to and, and then sharing, you know, you're going to get you're going to maximize your ability to explore that way, I think. So since we happen to be talking about Realm, like, specifically, you know, they're, you know, they, again, I love, I frankly, I love every single thing that they make, but I I'd say their most iconic wine is called the, the, the absurd. And it's also, and it is got a super cool graffiti-esque label, but again, it's just a, it's in the, it is, you know, Benoit and them, they probably get mad at me if I said this, but it's like, it's in the vein, it's closer in the vein of sort of classic culty Napa, heavily extracted, very, you know, it is a big, they are big, fruity, alcoholic, in, but in good ways, not bad ways, and just tons of complexity, but they are very big. So if you like Harlan, if you like, you know, a promontory, if you, if you like, you know, Schrader, if you like those kinds of things, then, then you would love what they do. But basically I'd say like, look, if you're trying to source stuff, go to your local wine merchant, look at restaurant menus, but like for the smallest producers, you know, generally it's, it's going to be go visit a place and, or find friends who are members, you know, of, of things that are hard to get and, you know, pool your resources and join different things and then share. Yeah, Brady, I, I was to build on the realm side. We do the, we do have a connection. He might actually come on the podcast as the restaurateur and a bottle shop owner. He's also a big realm guy and oh, cool. is a, able to source wines. So Brady, I can, I can help you out there, but no, I, I've had a couple of their wines over time and they are amazing. I would say big, like your description, they're big, but balanced, definitely yes, balanced. Absolutely. Um, no, for sure. He also makes, so he has his own, not that I'm advertising for him, but again, we, we just, he's like probably our favorite single winemaker in California. And he also has his own label called Fate Maine. And he also makes the wine for a small winery called Bouret that's owned by the Bouret family, but, uh, but he's the winemaker for those three. Awesome. So uh, I'll go back to wine, pure wine questions here um, for a yeah. second. With all of your travels, well, I, I guess this is a two-parter. One is just out of personal interest for a specific region, but I would like to know where have you traveled that you in, thought was you enjoyed the most, whether it be pure scenery, you know, the experience, the access to being able to taste in certain ways. And then also just specifically, what did you think about pre-rot when you went? And then I guess maybe answer the first one after that, because I'm really interested in visiting pre-rot, but it seems so kind of out there. Yeah, it is. Uh, uh, interesting. So my wife and I went to Priorat on our 10th anniversary. So 10 years ago this summer, uh, and it was actually, we were, that was, we were deciding whether or not to, to move to London. I, I, I moved to London. We moved to London for two years when I joined Skype for a while. I helped Microsoft buy Skype. And then I went and joined the Skype team when, when Microsoft acquired them and moved to London for two years as part of that. But while we were house hunting, we sort of had our 10th anniversary trip, which we, had, we were supposed to have a few days without kids. And then it wound up getting partly hijacked by needing to do house hunting in London. But then we went to Priorat. So it was sort of a, a hectic time for our family. I would say we it was great, although I think, you know, the there's... In the grand scheme of things, I would say that Priorat lived less up to its hype 
you know, than some other places that we've been. And I don't mean to take away from, you know, from any of the amazing, you know, wines and wineries there, but just all up, like I felt, you know, we're, we don't, I would like, we're not, I'm not, I wouldn't be say I'm rushing to go back, nor do we buy a lot more pre-rot along the way. Again, I, it is definitely in the scheme of visiting regions and stuff, it's worth going for sure. But I, I'd say of the places we've been, and again, disappointment's a strong word because definitely was not a disappointment, but it was, I'd say, didn't quite live up to the hype relative to some other places for at least our personal preferences, even though it has that, you know, Grenache centricity and stuff like you're talking about. There's just, there's something about the, you know, the, the, the structure and the like, ultimately not our favorite. Although we keep revisiting everything that we bought over the years and it's fun to see them evolve. So it's more interesting and fun than it is like our favorite in terms of places we've been that I would say is both like the all up most cool experience. I'd say other than like we go to Napa every other year, like we so Napa is like a second home to us almost in terms of our wine journey. But in terms of real, like I'd say the the Southern Rhone was probably the most cool, both because we adore the wines in Chateauneuf-du-Pop. We also discovered Vakuras and Gigandas. We didn't know about Gigandas and Vakuras mm-hmm. when we went to book that trip and then just fell in love, especially with Gigandas. And of course, Gigandas is some of the best value for price wines in the world. Like there's just like a, 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 a Ventabren and uh, some other great producers there, like just really, really love what we discovered there. Plus we were with our kids and, you know, took our kids, you know, with us visiting a variety of, of the, of the wineries there. And so, and the people are just, it's just such a great vibe and it's a, such a beautiful place. So like wonderful stories about every place we've visited, but if I had to pick one, the combination of the family piece and the wine piece and the confirming what we already loved and discovering something new in the form of Gigandas, I'd say it was the Southern Rhone. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, I've always thought that area would be really pretty and I kind of wanted to do a little loop up, you know, maybe just drive up the Hermitage and kind of see yeah. Northern Rhone and, and stay down there and try to get some seaside stuff in too. What do you think about Rhone, like the white varietals of the Rhone? I think they're all some of the most underappreciated kind of white wines around. What do, what do you think about those? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I'd be the first to say, whoops, there's a dog in the background. I'd be the first to say we're we're pro- we're definitely far. We like we drink like we're far more. I would call us collectors of red wine and can and consumers of of white wine and rosé. So like we absolutely drink our fair share of white and rosé during during the summertime, and you know love to enjoy it but we are not nearly educated and focused. And like, for example, I have a really close friend who is a serious white Burgundy collector and, you know, applies, you know, 80 plus percent of his wine collecting budget into white Burgundy. And I'm just, you know, like not nearly as smart about that. Would he want to invest in a collection of white Burgundy? Because we <laughs> you happen to have one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe. But anyway, yeah, I think this is this has been fantastic. I really, really appreciate all the questions. I hope again, I hope it wasn't hope it hope it hit the mark for the listeners. And it's certainly been fun for me. So I hope it was fun for everybody else. Uh, thank you. Yeah, we're uh, at least from my side, I'm certainly gonna have to follow up and get some some tips on certain regions and also your, your other maybe top 10 of your books that you've read. Cause I'd, I'd love to see. Yeah, that'd be great. 
Thanks so much, Jeff. I, you know, we took a ton of notes and we'll put those in the um, description so that everyone, all of our listeners can um, see the books that you mentioned, as well as some of the producers and regions so that that's easy for everyone to follow along. We thanks so much for joining. We hope to connect more in the future and, and do some more collaboration maybe. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to. This was this was really great. I love the questions and I, I look forward to maybe getting a chance to raise a glass together sometime. That'd be fantastic. Yeah, I would love that too. Cheers. All right. Take care, guys. Have a good one. Bye now. Yep. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vent podcast, please email us at support at vent.co. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vent platform, find us at www.vent.co. That's www.vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vent platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering. 